you have a Bible with you, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 3. There are uh, Bibles available on the back uh, table there if you didn't bring one and you want one, and there's also the text printed in the bulletin for you. Ephesians 3, we'll look at verses 1 through 13 this morning. Uh, This passage is, um, I think, pretty hard to understand. It's hard to make sense how it connects in the flow of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, right? It would seem uh, that Paul interrupts himself here uh, mid-sentence in verse 1 for a really long parenthetical statement, a parenthetical statement that lasts for two full paragraphs, uh, which sort of makes me want to just shut down my brain while I read it. Uh, I don't know if you're anything like me. I just think I can skip to the next part where he picks up his trail again. Uh, And in fact, I will admit that I didn't uh, really fully understand Paul's main point here, the point that he's making, uh, until this recent study of Ephesians. And I've actually given it quite a lot of thought over the years. Uh, In fact, this is a little story. Um, In one class that I took in seminary, which was a long time ago now, (laughs) um, this, this class, Principles of Inductive Bible Study where the main point of the whole class was to learn how to read the Bible, learn how to interpret the Bible, the semester project was to write a commentary on these verses, on this section that we're talking about today. And the professor uh, spent the whole semester teaching us how to read the Bible in a certain way so that it would produce a certain interpretation of this passage uh, that would lead itself to a certain theology that he was espousing, And being a rather infamous contrarian, I refused to play his little game, and I wrote my commentary with a divergent interpretation, and he gave me an F on my project and a C in the class, which should give you all tremendous confidence in my ability to teach you (laughs) the class on how to read the Bible. Um, Needless to say, I argued with him about it. And uh, since then, this passage has been a sore spot for me for about a dozen years, thinking about it. All the time I think about it, I probably haven't wrestled with many other passages the way I've done with this. I've given it some thought, and just as a side note, let me reassure you, I think I was actually right in the point that I was debating with my, with my professor, um, but actually, I, we both just missed the main point. We missed the main point of what's going on here, what Paul's trying to communicate. I've never really gotten it until pretty recently. I'm actually so excited about it. I can hardly contain my excitement in um, telling you what this is about. So it's a little difficult, but um, it is worthwhile. It's very worthwhile. So let's look at the passage. Let's pray first. Father, we need your help now as always as we consider your word. This word... um, has a tendency to run straight against our presuppositions about life and about you and about our relationship with you. We have these expectations that need to be overturned. We pray that you would do that in a way that um, would win us to to yourself, that we would um, not be put off by the fact that our expectations are overturned, but that we would be delighted in your perspective on how we can have a relationship with you and live with you in this world. We pray that you would help us in Jesus' name. 
Amen. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I will say that... uh, I remember one thing from that class on how to read the Bible, the professor standing on his toes and leaning forward, kind of hopping a bit to give it emphasis. Context, context, context. Um, That is to say, when you have a hard time reading a certain passage of scripture, you find out what it's about by looking around it, right? What's this whole section about? What's this book about? And uh, it's pretty much impossible to understand the main point of our section um, that we're looking at this morning without knowing what Paul has been saying and actually what he's about to say, right? In fact, he makes the connection himself when he starts uh, in verse 1. He says, for this reason, that's one of the little tricks of good Bible reading is uh, you ask yourself questions like, well, what's that there for? What's the therefore, therefore, right? Uh, for this reason, what's he talking about? Right? What's the connection that he's making? He's referring to the thoughts that he's developed in the first two chapters, which he actually mentions explicitly in our text. He says, as I've already written briefly. Right? So he's pointing back to the first two chapters of Ephesians. This is what Paul's been telling us about God. This is what the, the book of Ephesians is about. And this is what we need to know in order to understand what we're talking about this morning. Paul has been telling us about God really, what kind of God he is. He's the triune God. He's the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who works for our salvation through great sacrifice to himself. He's the the kind of God who gives himself to people who don't deserve it in order to bring them into his family and make them uh, reconciled to himself. Paul's been telling us what God's power is like. It's resurrection power. It's not the power to spare you from suffering and death. It's the power to bring new life out of suffering and death. Paul's been telling us um, 
that we have a new identity in Christ. We've been trying to get an identity for ourselves, build an identity on who we are and what we can do apart from Christ. And Paul's been telling us, um, you've got to live outside of yourself. You've got to live vicariously through another person. You've got to take and receive this identity that's been given to you freely. He's been telling us what the church is. This group, this kind of mixed bag of people who are um, natural-born enemies, that even they are being reconciled and they have an extreme kind of a unity and a love that they share because of their relationship to Christ. So he's been telling us what the church is and how we're supposed to think about it and how we're supposed to let the vision of the gospel and the vision of the church that he's telling us about fill our eyes. This vision in particular about how we are being built together as a temple, the household of God, as we looked at uh, just last time at the end of chapter 2, the household of God, a holy temple in the Lord where we're these living stones built around the cornerstone who is Christ, built on him and shaped like him. Right? Corporately, we are his body together. We're this living temple. So it's very important for us to understand about what he's been saying, that none of this is intuitive for us. None of it is something that we would have guessed. Paul has made the point repeatedly, repeatedly using words like revelation. He's revealed, he's made this known to us. God has made this known. If God and his ways and his work and the way we're supposed to relate to him in the church, if God is going to make that, if we're going to know that about God, he has to make it known to us. He has to tell us clearly. We need words on paper, right? We need information because it is all counterintuitive for us because of our sin, because we're going the other way and our minds are upside down, we're on our heads. We can't think about God rightly. We do not, by nature, think well about God or think rightly about God. If we're going to know him, he has to tell us. So this, all of this that's come before is from Revelation, Paul says over and over again, you, you wouldn't figure this on your own just by looking at the world around you, right? Um, and he's already prayed that God would give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the, in the knowledge of Jesus Christ without which we would be in the dark, right? If we didn't have his spirit as an answer to this prayer of Paul's in Ephesians 1, we'd be in the dark. And as he wrapped up chapter 2, then, uh, these first two chapters getting us to where we are now, he was about to pray again. Again, I mean, he was praying a lot in this book because uh, we need it. He was going to pray again that we would be able, that we'd have the strength, that we would actually be able to know the love of God that surpasses knowledge, this unknowable love. It's, it's so big. It's so beyond us so different than we, what we would have expected, we actually need his help to be able to understand it, right? Um, so he knows, Paul knows, that not only do we need holy information, content, like words on the page from God, revelation, um, that we would, we would never imagine on our own apart from revelation, but we actually need God's help internally to change us, to make us able to understand it, right? to make us able to accept it, to, to be able to grasp the revelation, to let it into our lives and let it have its effect on us. Right? Um, and all that is to say, all this stuff is, is pretty counterintuitive 
Uh, just If you've gotten anything to this point, that's fine. God's salvation, who God is and the way that he works in the world and in our lives and in the gospel is not something we would have guessed. It goes against our expectations. It is counterintuitive. And so we are utterly dependent on God, his revelation and his illumination, his spirit's work, um, if we're going to know him and know his ways. Now, as Paul actually finished up chapter 2 and goes on to pray, uh, he begins in our passage, in verse 1, for this reason, I, Paul, he's saying, for this reason, I'm going to pray for you again, right? Because all this is counterintuitive. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Stop right there. That's, that's what he does, right? He is sensitive to how crazy that sounds. He's sensitive to how difficult it might be for the Ephesians to hear what he just said, right? For this reason, I'm about to pray for you. I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. He's sensitive to how that sounds because here is the holy apostle. He's the man sent from God with the very words of God. The most important, incredible news the world has ever heard from God himself, right? The holy apostle sitting in chains, writing a letter from prison to a group of misfits, the Gentiles, right? People who were without God in the world before, before they knew the gospel. Our intuition, the way we normally think about the world, the, our, our regular expectations would, uh, would be something like this. Paul's a prisoner. Something must be wrong. Something must be pretty wrong. Right? If Paul's languishing in chains, maybe God doesn't care about Paul. Maybe Paul did something wrong, and it was the last straw this time. Maybe God isn't really sovereign, and he just can't do anything to get Paul out of prison. Maybe there is, in fact, no God at all, and everything Paul has told us about God and about his ways, about his salvation, is just a big, fat lie. Right? But what do you think? When you look at pretty bad circumstances in your life, when you enter into a time of suffering, things are not going well, what do you think? What questions come to your mind? Has God abandoned me? Why is this happening? God must be cruel. Maybe God's just impotent. He can't do anything about this. Right? This is all wrong. Maybe I deserve this. Maybe, maybe this is some kind of a punishment. Right? Those kind of thoughts, that, that, that kind of wrestling when you encounter suffering and bad circumstances in your life, those are only amplified when it's not just you, it's someone who you care about. Right? Someone you care about is suffering. Uh, the Ephesians really cared about Paul. Right? He lived with them for two years. He he um, treated them like his own children. And in Acts, there's recorded for us this very tearful parting when they realized they were never going to see each other again. Um, they'd become family. They really loved Paul. 
So what does it mean when the one that we love, the apostle, the one who was sent with the gospel itself, the world-altering, life-shattering gospel, what does it mean when he's locked up away from the public, unable to preach to large crowds anymore, potentially looking at a death sentence? What does that mean? So Paul basically says, when he introduces himself and the fact that he's going to pray for them to be able to understand God's kind of love, um, as a prisoner, he says, look, I know it's hard to believe. I know it's hard to believe, but stuff like this is all part of God's plan, and ultimately it's for your good. It's like I've been telling you all along, this stuff is counterintuitive. God's work doesn't, it's not just obvious to us, the way that he works. So he says that, assuming that you've heard, in verse two, uh, verse 2, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Uh, stewardship, I think, is an unfortunate uh, translation of a word that also appears in verse 9, and it's translated plan there. That's a better word, plan. Um, it's a... Uh, Stewardship is a legitimate translation of this word, and maybe in other parts of the New Testament where it's translated, uh, the, the Greek word is translated stewardship, that's appropriate, but the context here, um, uh, it, it makes sense to translate it something more like plan, like it already appears elsewhere in this, in this translation in verse 9. The, the word is oikonomia, um, or ekonomia, which the root of that, I mean, maybe it sounds like economy, Right? Uh, the root of it is house, oikos, right? The root of that word is house. And so the best translation of it is household blueprint. Household blueprint or a pattern for a building, right? Kind of the blueprints, the scheme, the schematics or the diagram, the pattern. Something with a pattern for a building. So kind of reinserting that, uh, that idea into this uh, translation, it's that you've heard of the pattern of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the, the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. So Paul's referring to the gospel. He t- talks about this mystery. Uh, he goes on just in the next verse to t- talk about what that mystery is. He's talking about the gospel, right? It's the gospel he's already been talking about for the first two chapters. Who God is, what he's like, who Jesus is, what his work is for us, the way that we're reconciled to him uh, by his grace. He calls it the mystery. He doesn't just call it the gospel. He calls it the mystery. So Tim Keller says in a a pretty good sermon on this, says that in modern literature and film, a mystery is something hidden from you that it's your job to discover. That's what you think about when you, you're reading a mystery novel or you're watching a Agatha Christie show or something like that. You're, you're working hard to figure out what's going on here, and there's little clues planted here, and it's your job, your job to discover what, what really happened, your job to discover the mystery. That's in, in modern literature and film. The Greek word, Tim Keller uh, continues, the Greek word, especially as Paul uses it, means exactly the opposite. It means not something hidden that you have to discover, 
but something revealed by God because you would never discover it because it's so counterintuitive. In other words, an astonishing, counterintuitive revelation. So when Paul is talking about the gospel, he doesn't just say the gospel. He refers to the gospel as the mystery. And he's calling attention to the counterintuitive nature of the gospel. This is not something we would figure out. He says, I'm going to help you understand it the way that I understand it, the way that God has given to me to understand this. Um, So he says, the mystery of Christ, verses 4 and 5, was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Again, it was counterintuitive. They didn't figure it out. Nobody figured this stuff out until God revealed it in Christ and to his apostles. And the mystery in verse 6, this is the definition of the mystery, is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Je- of Christ Jesus through the gospel. So the Jews, they were the heirs. They were the partakers of the promise. They were the people of God. And now it's been made known to us that also the Gentiles, they're fellow heirs, they're equal heirs. And that's true in Christ through the gospel. So I used to think that that was the main point of the passage, that in Christ, the Gentiles are equal with the Jews. Just straight up equal. But that's a point that he's already made in chapter 2. It's not the main point here. And let me just say um, real quickly um, that Jew-Gentile equality was something that was actually revealed in the Old Testament. It was actually revealed, as Rainey read in our Old Testament reading in Ezekiel 47, um, the sojourners were allotted an inheritance as if they were native-born. Right? The Gentiles who came to live with God's people, to become part of God's people, they were accepted. They were to be accepted as God's own people, as native Israelites. Right? And so they were grafted in. They were supposed to be grafted in and granted the same rights, the same inheritance, and everything. So that was, that was known before. Um, but it's not just the fact that they're equal. It's the fact that we're one we're united, we are one body in Christ. And that means especially through the gospel, which is a reference to his suffering, his death, his atonement, his sacrifice for us. That's the part that nobody would have understood, is that he can take two people who are mortal enemies and he can make them one through his self-sacrificial love through his suffering love in Christ, this is true of us, right? In Christ, we've been reconciled to God and to each other. But again, that's the subject matter of chapter two. We've already covered that. What Paul's doing here is he's highlighting the mysterious nature of it, right? The counterintuitive nature of the church, that these mortal enemies would be united in Christ through the cross. That does not make sense. We look at that, we wonder, What does that mean to have a Savior who dies? And that fixes everything in the world? That unites mortal enemies? What is that? That's a mystery. That does not make sense unless God tells us about it, right? It's not something that's obvious 
but it was revealed by God. And you remember in the Gospels, this was always the case for Jesus' disciples. They followed Jesus, they're trying to learn from him, and they're scratching their heads. And he's, he's saying, I'm going to go and suffer and I'm going to die for you. And they'd be like, no, what? <laughs> that, that, that doesn't work. That's not what a savior is. Right? They had expectations. He was overturning them. Disciples are always confused. Right? Especially when it comes to his suffering and our suffering. Right? To suffering in general. Bad circumstances in general. We're always confused about that. And Paul highlights here the, this mysterious um, counterintuitive nature, not just of the church, but of his having been made a minister. Over and over again, he's highlighting, this is weird. This is weird. The gospel is weird. This church thing is weird. The fact that I'm a minister, it doesn't make any sense, right? He says, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power, which is this resurrection power. It doesn't make any sense to us when we're just looking at it. To me, Though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ to the Gentiles. None of this makes any sense, right? He's saying, when I was on my way to eradicate Christianity because I I was an enemy of Christ and his church, I was trying to wipe it out. I was on my way to do just that. The risen Lord Jesus knocked me off my horse and said, you're going to be my spokesman now. And you're going you're gonna to talk about how awesome I am to your favorite people, the Gentiles. And in fact, you're going to love them. And you're going to give your life for them. And I'm going to show you how much you have to suffer for my name. No one saw that coming. Paul didn't see it coming. Nobody, you can't, that doesn't make any sense, right? And Paul's saying that's how God works. That's the point of this passage, is to say that's what God's work in the world, throughout history, and in your life, and in this church, that's what it always looks like. You look at it, and you're like, what? <laughs> but it's glorious. Right? No one sees it coming, but it's really, really good after the fact, after we get kind of look back in hindsight and say, wow, okay, yeah. <clears throat> so Paul goes on to say, not just that he lived to preach the gospel to them. He, he does live to preach the gospel. He was uh, conscripted into God's service to preach the gospel. But he doesn't just say, I was, I was made to preach the gospel, um, the mysterious counterintuitive gospel of a Savior who dies, and in his death we find life. He's not just saying, I'm, I'm conscripted to preach the mysterious gospel. He doesn't just say that. He says, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery. What is the pattern of God's mysterious work in the gospel? God's mysterious work in the gospel, the fact that it's mysterious and counterintuitive, that's a pattern. And I'm going to tell you about that. It's very important that you would know. That is what characterizes God's work. This is what it looks like when God's at work, not just in the gospel, but really all the time, right? And it's a bit confusing, but, uh, but we've seen glimpses of that pattern throughout the Old Testament. Right? There's no book in the world 
that is more honest and deals more clearly with suffering and tragedy and death than the Scriptures. It's all over the place in the Old Testament, and we see this pattern. Joseph, sold into slavery, betrayed by his brothers, sold, imprisoned, and then exalted to the highest place so that he can be the savior of the known world, right? And he says, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. That's the pattern. We see the evil, God means it for good. The pattern continues, righteous Job, he is um, like on the favorites list of God. He says to the devil, check this guy out. He's amazing, I love him. And so he's struck with suffering so that he can be blessed with a deeper knowledge of God. Right? Blessed in a bigger way at the end than he was at the beginning. Through the suffering. Real suffering. Go read Job. It's real suffering. A famine in Israel, in the nation, in, in Bethlehem, drives a family out of the country and the father and the sons and all the, all the providers of that family they die in a foreign land, and so Naomi and Ruth come back. Through all this suffering, the famine and the death of their loved ones, all this suffering, they come back to Bethlehem so that they could be renewed by God's redeeming love, so they could be brought into his, his love. Right? It's a pattern. It's a pattern. Glory and life through suffering and death. And then we see um, the pattern fully resolved, given its perfect shape in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, you've got the innocent one, the Son of God himself. If anyone ever deserved not to suffer one lick, it was Jesus Christ. Didn't deserve an ounce of the suffering he got, and he was rejected, and he was abandoned, and he was betrayed, and he was mocked, and he was murdered, and it's impossible for us to imagine a deeper life of suffering, a more thorough experience of suffering than you see in Jesus Christ. And anyone looking on, everyone that looked on, had the same questions that we always have about our suffering. What? What is God doing? Is, is he the Messiah? Or not. We thought he would be. This doesn't seem to fit. We don't get this. This is not making sense, right? Worldly intuition says, as the people said at the, at the cross when they watched Jesus, if God really loved you, he would spare you from suffering. If God was really powerful, you wouldn't be going through this. That's what worldly intuition says. The scoffers said to him, he saved others. Let him save himself if he's the Christ of God, his chosen one. And Psalm 22 gets quoted, and there's this, uh, this passage from Psalm 22, which is the cry of, of dereliction that Jesus uttered from the cross. He says, I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let God rescue him, for God delights in him. Right? The presupposition, the expectation that we have, the normal intuitive way that we have of thinking is, if God delights in you, he'll spare you this. 
if you're not being spared suffering, something must be wrong with you or with God. Right? But in fact, Christ's rejection and his suffering and his death is everywhere in the scriptures attested to the fact that this is all part of God's plan. Right? And ultimately, it served the glorious purpose of our great salvation. If it weren't for the suffering of our Savior, we would not know God. We would not have a relationship with him. We would be lost without hope, without God in the world. Right? And that's a mystery. No one saw it coming. No one would have guessed it in a million years. We hear about the gospel, about Jesus' death and his resurrection, which doesn't make any sense either. The disciples still are scratching their heads at the end of the Gospels when Jesus comes back to life. What is going on? And we hear about the reconciliation to God that we have through a dying and crucified and, and risen Savior. The reconciliation to God that we have through him. And the unity that we have with each other in, the, in his body and the church. And we say, where did that come from? Right? And uh, Eugene, Peterson, Eugene Peterson said, Church as the body of Christ is not obvious, but neither is Jesus as the Savior of the world obvious. Stuff is not obvious, right? And it's not just that mystery of the gospel, but it's that pattern of that mystery that Paul wants us to understand with his own level of insight. The suffering and death of Christ, the apparent futility of it, the apparent meaningless of it, the, the apparent dead end of his work, Everything that that says to us when we see Jesus on the cross, when the whole world saw him on the cross, what that apparently says to us, that's our great salvation. And that's not an isolated thing in the history of God's dealings with people. That's the way God works throughout history and in your life. God always works that way. So we should get used to it. Right? We should get used to it. We should see the value in it. Um, it's actually how he helps us to grow in Christ's likeness. We become more like the loving, suffering servant as suffering is, is brought into our lives. Right? It's the household blueprint. It's the pattern for the building of the temple construction project. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, right? He's the first block laid and everything else out from that extends in the same pattern and looks and it's shaped by him. It's shaped around him, and uh, we're all being built into that image together according to this pattern. Right? Suffering that produces glory. Suffering that produces life. We're all being made to look more like the rejected cornerstone. The fact that he's rejected, that nobody understood him, that they threw him out with the trash. And he was the most loving and perfect human being who ever lived. Uh, we're being made to look more like the one who suffered everything for the sake of love. Right? Hebrews chapter 2, the writer says, It was fitting that God, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Right? In Hebrews 12, it says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself 
so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. This is what God does with his sons. God's making us into people who suffer for love's sake like his son did. We're prone to interpret our sufferings as if something was terribly wrong, as if God had abandoned us. You look at the circumstances in your life and you say, where is God in this? This is miserable. I hate this. I can't stand this. God must have abandoned me or the kingdom isn't a real, it's not a reality or I'm being punished for something. This is all wrong. We look at our our circumstances. But this mysterious pattern that Paul's talking about means that even if we don't see how, which most of the time we don't, even if we don't see how um, the suffering and the awful circumstances that surround us, it's our glory. It's our glory. That's what Paul says as we're shaped into the image of the glorious Son of God. He says in verse 10, so that through the church, this crazy, mashed-up group of, it's what nobody would have expected, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now, not later, now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So if anyone in this world looks at the church, ourselves included, but anyone in this world, you look at the church in and of itself, at what a mess it is, like Paul, the great apostle, sitting in prison, writing a letter in chains. They're not going to see the glory of it. We just don't see it. We do not see the glory of it. So is it any wonder that skeptics, their biggest questions about faith and about God are about suffering and about the messed up nature of the church? This thing is a huge pile of junk. How could this possibly be serving any good purpose? There's nothing good that's coming of this, right? We don't see any glory here. That's what we all say when we look with just our eyes. There's nothing going on here, right? But you know who can see the glory of it? Beings who can see invisible things. That's what it says. The the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. He's talking about angels, right? Beings who can see what's going on behind the scenes because they know from God's own perspective what's really happening here. And it's glorious. It might look painful and terrible and miserable and broken, but that's where God's glory is. They can see how God is building his church. They can see how he's building his temple, his kingdom, how he's fashioning us into the likeness of Christ so that his beauty and his glory are displayed. Right? They can see it, that how God's doing that out of apparently futile and meaningless circumstances. They can see it. And it's just what Jesus was talking about in, in one of his kingdom parables. He says, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It's like leaven that uh, a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. You, 
you can't see the leaven at work. You look at it, it's just a big lump sitting there, right? You can't see any transformation taking place, but it is taking place. And beings that can see the invisible things, they can see that and, and glorify God for his wisdom and his ability to do that. To take people like you and me and turn us into, into Christians, right? People who reflect Christ in our lives. You can't see the kingdom at work very well. You're going to look and it's going to be counterintuitive, but the angels can see it, right? It's a real thing. So Paul says, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory, right? If Christ's crucifixion can be peace for you and for all the nations, if Paul's imprisonment could be glory, then what could it really be? What could it really be when you look at the mess of your life? You look at the mess of circumstances in your life. You look at the mess of this church, right? The, the, the church at, uh, at large. Do you just look around at things at the church, at your relationships, at your circumstances? Do you just look around and find reason to be discouraged, reason for despair, right? Reasons for complaining, fear, worry. The community does not meet your expectations, right? If you look at the church just like that, you can only see a disintegrating wreck unless you believe, like Paul says, because he received it from God, because God told him, you can think this way about my work in the world, that this is the normal pattern, and it's ultimately for your glory, right? Um, Eugene Rosenstock said that Christianity has repeatedly been bankrupt. Repeatedly been bankrupt. Christianity is a perpetual reenactment of the death and resurrection of its founder. Right? So it feels like we're bankrupt right now in our culture, doesn't it? <clears throat> um, it feels like we're on the ropes right now. And uh, according to God's plan, that's where all the best stuff happens. That's where all the best stuff happens. Tertullian said in the second century, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. We think persecution is a hindrance to the growth of the church, to the expansion of God's kingdom, to the gospel going forth. Paul says, uh, it's not apparent. You're going to look and you're not going to see it. It's not apparent. But persecution is the church's glory. To suffer with Christ, to suffer for Christ, to become more like the one who loved through great suffering. That's our glory. Sharing in Christ's sufferings means also sharing in his resurrection, Paul says in Philippians 3. And it's all reason for us not to be discouraged, not to be disheartened, but actually to rejoice, rejoice in our sufferings, which the Bible crazily enough says. Right? We can rejoice when pastors are imprisoned, when, uh, when we suffer financial losses, when our businesses are shut down, right? when, um, when we're humiliated, when we encounter bitterness and resentment, real hostility from people around us, when we meet the withdrawal of friends, friends and family who don't want to have anything to do with us, they don't want to talk with us anymore right? because of the gospel, we don't see the glory in that pain and in those circumstances. Not yet, anyway, but angels see it. 
they see the manifold wisdom or the, the multifaceted or the brilliant, like a gem sparkling, the brilliant wisdom of God that he works in such a way that's invisible to all of us with people like us, that he does that. That goes uh, to his glory. Angels look at the cross, they're baffled. The son of God would do this, that this is salvation. Angels look at the church, they're baffled. This is full of messed up people who hate each other. Angels look at, at Paul, the least of all the saints, the least baffled that he would be chosen to proclaim the gospel. Angels look at Paul in prison, baffled that this is glorious gospel ministry, sitting in chains, writing a letter. Angels look at this church and your life, and they say, that's amazing. That's amazing. And we're scratching our heads. <laughs> Doesn't make any sense to me. Angels say, that's amazing. That's God's power at work. Glory might not be visible to you in your sufferings, but it's there. And it's a pattern for the mystery that Paul's talking about. It's guaranteed because it's right in line with the gospel of Jesus Christ, this historical reality that we know this is how God works. This is how he does the biggest things that he does in this universe. So you need to lock right onto that pattern. Lock right onto that revelation. You need to let the, the Bible shape your vision of this world and God's work and your relationship with him, you need to steep yourself in the mystery of God, the counterintuitive mystery of God. You need to stay close to the revelation. You need to pray like Paul is going to pray after this passage for his readers that the Spirit would make you able to know it, able to know the love of God that surpasses knowledge because it's all a mystery. It's all a mystery unless you know God's word and you know him through Jesus Christ. We close with... Uh, <clears throat> the lyrics of a song, a hymn from William Cooper. <laughs> God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will you fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, faith sees a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. Amen. Let's pray. God, these are hard uh, words, hard concepts for us to grasp because uh, it just goes right against everything that we've been taught to believe in this world that if we encounter suffering, that um, it means there's something wrong with us or there's something wrong with you or maybe you're not there or you don't care. And you've revealed that this is the way that you usually work in the lives of your people to make us beautiful, to make us like your son, Jesus, the one who is the perfect lover because he gave himself to the utmost 
through uh, sacrificial death. And so we don't know all the good that will come of it, but we do pray that you would make us more like Jesus. And we pray that you would help us to, to fix our eyes on you through the gospel, to, to be able to understand your love and to some degree uh, uh, the way that you work in the world and in our lives in a way that we can take comfort, that, um, that our lives are, are painful and bad circumstances happen not in vain because you have told us it is for our good and for your glory. And so we want to rest in knowing that uh, whatever it is that comes into our life, it's not ultimately for evil against us, it's for our good, because we have it guaranteed to us in Christ and in the pattern of the mystery of the gospel that we see in him. We pray that you would drive that truth deeper into our hearts and cause us to live for you in this world in such a way that, um, that befuddles the people around us, but that ultimately demonstrates what kind of glorious wisdom you really have, that you would do your work in the lives of people like us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.